0: Listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and
1: Jesse Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. We can hardly believe it, but this is the last interview of season three. It's been a hectic six months, and we're going to be taking a little time off. But fear not, Manufactured will be back sometime this autumn. Follow us on Instagram, or sign up to the newsletter via our website for updates about exactly when that will be. Okay, on to this week's episodes, which we're pretty excited about. A couple of months ago, in episodes 29 and 30, we chatted to Miran Ali, spokesperson of the Star Network. The first inter-Asian network of producer associations. And if you tuned into that episode, you might remember that, with the support of GIZ Fabric, the Star Network recently joined forces with the International Apparel Federation, or the IAF, to call for better purchasing practices.
0: At the time, Miran shared quite a bit about how suppliers came together to call for better purchasing practices and described the collaboration process. But we've been
1: wondering, Where is the initiative at now? Here to give us some insight into that is Matthijs Kriter, Secretary General at the IAF. Matthijs starts off with some context. What is the IAF anyway, and how did he personally end up in this industry? We then get into purchasing practices. Have suppliers come to an understanding about what's most important to them since we last talked to Miron? And what's next? What's commercial compliance and how does Matai's envision that these standards on purchasing practices might actually be implemented? In part two of our conversation, also released today,
0: Matai offers some concrete examples of partnership models and how digitalization can help reshape business processes and by extension supply chain relationships. He also shares his thoughts on why manufacturers have been by and large left out of sustainable fashion conversations and the
1: impact that this has on the supply chain as a whole. Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with GIZ Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. Matthijs moderated the ninth edition of GIZ Fabric's online seminar series called Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry. The seminar series is free and available online, and we highly recommend checking it out. If you are
0: on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at Manufactured_Podcast. podcast, or
1: sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Matthijs, we'd love to get some context about the IAF and your story.
2: Yeah, so I'm uh, Matthijs um and Secretary General of the uh, IAF, the International Apparel Federation. Uh, to some of you, it may be, uh, may be known, to others not. The International Apparel Federation has as its core members uh, industry associations across the across the globe in all continents. So it's really the only uh, association that uh, joins together on a global level, um, industry associations that again represent a lot of companies. Um, but these, and I think that's a, a, a unique aspect and that will uh, that sort of shines through in all of the work that the IF does. Um, it uh, combines um, brands, mostly smaller and medium-sized brands, because those are the members of mm. the associations in countries like the Netherlands or Germany or Canada or Australia um, uh, with, on the other hand, uh, manufacturers, um, because those are the members of our association members in countries like Bangladesh and China and Pakistan and Ethiopia. Um, right.
1: Which I think is really important to emphasize, too, because if you compare it, I mean, tell me if I got it right, but if you compare it to like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which is also a membership organization, that's only a membership organization of individual companies, whereas IAF is like this mix. You've got these um, national level associations plus some individual members Plus, also, you know, organizations that input and are affiliated with what you do that are, you know, related to the sector, but maybe not yeah, brands it's a, it's a, or suppliers.
2: It's very different. Um, yeah, uh, and and it's also, um, well, the name says it: it's a coalition and not an association, right? right. And, and 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 an association is a um, is an org- yeah, it's a typical organization with typical characteristics. Um, uh, for instance, yesterday, uh, the IF had its general assembly. Uh, so that's how an association works. The general assembly is the, is the main decision-making body. So we actually, um, approved the decision of a new, uh, IF president, uh, who will be, uh, starting the press release will, uh, come out uh, <laughs> later today. So <laughs> actually, um, and by the time this podcast is uh, is aired, that will be <laughs> that will be known. And and I promise you, it it, it does underscore our um, uh, current focus on, uh, on on manufacturing.
1: And for interested listeners, that new president is Sem Altan, founder of ASEM Textiles, and he is a member of the board of directors of both the Istanbul Apparel Exporters Association and of the Turkish Clothing Manufacturers Association. In it was started industries. by manufacturers too, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. That, let, let me explain it. But first, um, let me say that um, we, we tend to look in the fashion industry, in the uh, garment industry, at the garment industry. <laughs> and then tend to forget what happens outside of it, right? That that happens a lot. But um, so we don't really have an international federation, international body uh, that everybody knows that also the large players are all a member of and that then govern almost some of these important issues. And other industries do, right? So so um we were in a call not so long ago um with uh with the ILO and the uh, secretary generals of some other associations and there you had the airline industry you have Iata uh which is which is a major body the airline industry and which is where everybody gets together our industry is much more uh much more fragmented um and it you're right um it was started uh, in 1972 so next year is the 50th anniversary by uh, three associations um that were at that time manufacturing associations from europe from the us and from japan so that was the that was the start of it Uh, and we all hope to get together physically again this year in uh, November. Um on November 6th to 9th, we are having our annual conference um in Antwerp. So it has a physical location. Uh, we hope many people can uh, can can travel. The restrictions will it looks good, but the restrictions will have been lifted as much as possible.
1: Can you give us a sense of I mean you've mentioned that it's international but is it is there is there an easy way to give us a sense of sort of the scale and the scope of the like the garment industry that the IAF sort of covers?
2: Yes, we we always say um uh, the associations that we represent in in turn represent uh hundreds of thousands of companies and tens of millions of workers, right? Um and and that's a lot <laughs> um and uh, and sometimes i'm i'm amazed you know to to be speaking to manufacturers and then uh, finding out that they have 50,000 80,000 people working for that for that one mm. uh, company
1: yeah and i'm thinking imagine we, we that
2: imagine being the ceo of a company with with that kind of responsibility
1: i mean we talked to um shahi exports on the show a couple of months ago they have over a hundred thousand employees yeah and you just like it's it's mind-boggling
2: it is yeah and and what i've always learned working for associations is that uh, um uh yeah you have to respect that uh i think it, 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 yeah. that's that that's the right word um, you're always a, a little bit humble it's the entrepreneurs that know that set up the business that take that kind of risk and take on that kind of uh, responsibility and you are there um you know you're you're there to serve these uh, organizations um and to do something um that can only be done when when voices are united uh and, and you know that, that's the little piece of the puzzle that that you're adding working for an association or a federation and uh, what we are doing on an international level is what comes at an international level uh, as a federation um, which is again also only one piece of the puzzle. I mean a lot of work is done in the different countries where where our members are lobbying their governments and all of that stuff we're not doing. At some point they're saying look there are things that we can't really handle on a national level or we can't handle even on a regional European level uh, and for that it would be nice you know to get together once in a while and have a, a global voice
1: so where do, where does your story fit fit into all this how did you end up with the iaf or how did this become a topic that was something that you thought hey this is what i want to spend my career doing <laughs>
2: uh, well yeah you're not the the only one asking me that question um um because how, how does one end up in an industry uh, like this if, if it's not, uh, you know, uh, by heritage, <laughs> so to speak? Um, no, I, I studied international economics and economic geography. And, and um, geography is uh, really the science of location, right? Well, and, and economic geography is location of business. So why is an industry there and not there? Uh, and what makes it competitive? Um And and the garment industry was really our prime example uh, during the time I uh, I I studied. I mean, that was the most internationalized, the earliest internationalized industry. So it was um, it was the ideal sample of uh, what we were what what I was studying. And then I did something very different. I got involved in trade policy. Um, So early on, I. I, I took on a research assignment studying the uh, the effects of the European trade policy on exports from India, um, and I got sort of involved with this multi-fiber agreement. Uh, this is what ended in uh, two thousand five, um, and it, it was very it was a very interesting uh, uh, time in terms of uh, in terms of trade policy. So that that made me join the Dutch industry association, uh, Modent. And then I realized, you know, spending my entire career in trade policy is probably a bit uh, risky because um, we're trying to get rid of a lot of the trade law. So uh, then if you're successful, you're you're, you're (laughs) You're out of a job. job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I wanted it to be successful. So i I tried to broaden up and I, and I was responsible at Modint for the uh consultancy work that we are doing uh on export support on trade policy, but also uh, uh more and more and more on on sustainability helping companies small medium sized brands mostly on dealing with uh with with the legislation and 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 the demands by society
1: Let's talk about purchasing practices. Well, as you know, we've been following very closely the work that the IAF and the Star Network have been doing um, with the support of the the GIZ fabric team on purchasing practices. And we talked to Miran Ali um, a couple of months ago on the show, who's the spokesperson for the Star Network in episodes 29 and 30. And he gave us a lot of insight into how this sort of uh, group of people came together to advocate for purchasing practices in the first place. And he went in. He started to get into a little bit what the process was like. And he mentioned that a white paper would be coming out soon. Explaining what's important to suppliers when it comes to purchasing practices. And so, you know, IAF is one of the key people, parties involved in uh, this initiative. And so I'm curious if you can give us a sense of where the initiative is at now, a couple of months later
2: let me first start by explaining where we are at uh, right um by the time this podcast comes out we will always uh, sorry almost be ready to uh, publish that that white paper Uh, we we had wanted to do it a little bit earlier um but in a process like that there are always things that require a little bit more uh attention right um a little bit more attention than you had <laughs> thought in the in the in the beginning uh and then it's better just to to get it right because we're, we're not doing this uh only for next year we're doing this uh for <laughs> eternity uh we would say for for the for the benefit of the industry so um uh, somewhere in the beginning of uh, of, of June, we, we are going to uh, to publish that white paper.
1: And a quick update on this: at the time of publishing this podcast, which is twenty two June two thousand and twenty one, the white paper hasn't been released yet, but is imminent and should be out in the next couple of weeks.
2: Now, at the same time, uh, we are um, working on our phase two. So we're 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 drafting um the the outline of what we are going to do in uh, in phase two because obviously there uh this work has only just started right um so what we have done is to ask the question to the manufacturers now if you were posed a question and you are by us um what would the purchasing practices need to look like right what in your view constitutes uh an ethical uh what do you experience as an ethical purchasing practices um and wh- where's room for improvement how did this come to be uh what would you like to be researched further uh what are some directions for solutions all of that uh we covered and i i'm sure miran um uh told a lot about that process right so uh all of that information uh came out uh, structured in that uh, in that white paper then of course the next step is yeah that's nice but <laughs> what are you going to do with that right now that we 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 have again um shaped one piece of the puzzle how do you fit it uh, in the puzzle and and that we said is going to hinge around this concept of commercial compliance um and, and and we felt in this first phase we needed to come up um with such a concept right uh that that can really uh in in a few words explain what we are trying to uh, what we're trying to achieve so um, i'm
1: going to push you on that what exactly yeah. in a few words is commercial compliance
2: then? yeah that's good well before i say that we are going to uh for in phase 2 we are going to really further define and shape exactly right what that means okay. that's part of the work but obviously we wouldn't uh launch it if we had no clue so it it in in our view uh the commercial compliance if you are commercial commercially compliant as a buyer um you are staying uh you are not misusing buying power um, and your purchasing practices stay within the realm of 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 ethical uh, practices um, and that that is you know a very broad definition um,
1: it's interesting and, that you choose the word ethical and not legal yeah.
2: no uh, for a reason mm-hmm. <laughs> because once you say legal uh, you you better know exactly what that means right um there's no there, there's not supposed to be much vagueness in legal that's the whole point of legal <laughs> um yeah. well
1: yeah and i know that in the wake of pandemic when we were seeing all these order cancellations part of the problem was that what a lot of these brands were doing was legal you know these contracts were were not in all cases but in you know i there was a report that came out by um by the ecchr and the wrc and the um International Lawyers Assisting Workers Network, and the report was called Farce Majeure. Talking about some of the clauses in these contracts, which were just, um, in my view, unethical.
2: <laughs> yeah, and um, even if you—I mean, that's the whole point, right? Even if you have contracts, even even if you have everything uh, sealed uh, legally, that still doesn't mean. Um, well if if you have the ability to do that, that doesn't mean that that somebody because the the balance of power is such somebody can say well uh you know let's not use that contract <laughs> Let's just go ahead and do it and uh, <laughs> um uh so legal is 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 something to to be really explored also because we are dealing uh with international uh, trade right and uh, so where is what are the internet laws governing uh international trade um and that's why also the 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 iaf has from early on started to get close to UN guiding principles the rugi framework what is happening there because that looks you know closest to uh framework that, that is able to on a global scale govern in some way uh, and 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 define uh, what this commercial compliance could uh, could look like, and then it's translated to the uh, to the OECD um, yeah. um, to the um, to the due diligence uh, guidance. Uh, IFS has, has always been a part of the advisory group of uh, of that, so we've we've been very close to to what is happening there. What what is good is that purchasing practices was uh always a big part, is all has always been a big part of, of these due diligence of this due diligence guidance. Um and it's really much more a balanced approach, looking also uh within that due diligence guidance at um, so what is a reasonable effort that buyers are actually making. Uh to ensure that there is no harm done in these supply chains, right, so right. these directions reasonable effort which is which is not necessarily what is exactly in the contract, right, which sometimes mm. goes goes beyond that, okay, I'm not saying there should be or there is going to be a law that says um you didn't now make a reasonable effort, right. Um, but it has to go in that in that direction
1: so is it fair to say that like okay to in sort of plain english that this white paper that's about to come out is looking at sort of trying to articulate what's acceptable ethically and what isn't and that the commercial compliance phase two is looking more at, like okay so then the how you know that how do you actually, uh, you know, bring these guidance that's going to come out in in these in these white papers? How do you bring that to life? Is that accurate yeah. or not?
2: Yeah, that, that is totally accurate. Um, okay. we are trying to um, in phase two, you know, have a, have an active uh, program of implementation of this. Mm. Um, well, part of that is further defining uh, the principle. Uh, but a big part of it is dialogue right um, um and some part of it um uh is some form of enforcement um um and the enforcement can be um i'm i'm using these words but uh just to make clear what we're doing um but it should not be exactly perceived in that way but uh, to have some form of a credible threat, right? Um, yeah. Uh, because if you only have dialogue, uh, then then it's going to be like the situation that we were already in, right? Um, only for certain at a at a higher level, because we now have much more insight in what manufacturers want. Um, but I think I think the part where, for instance, we can say, look, uh, if there if if there are really that breaches of commercial compliance, this, this can be more visible, right? And and maybe you don't want that to be visible if you're the one doing the breach. <laughs> so is, uh,
1: is credible threat somehow? I mean, I don't know if you're able to, I mean, if I read between the lines, is it something linked to reputation then, or is it something else?
2: Well that is part of what we what we have to define right and and um all of this is also bound by by the law right so um uh, there are laws on 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 competition um and and the interesting thing there is competition law is never a problem if what you are doing doesn't have much of an effect (laughs) Uh, so as, as soon as it starts you know to potentially have some some effect okay you know you're on the right track but you also have to act within within the law right uh that's mm-hmm. important and and for another part the law is is being shaped as we as we go along because this is this is a little bit new territory so that's that's why i i i i'm saying in this phase two we also have to to find out exactly what this what this means reputation could be uh, could be part of that right um and uh and 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 why not i mean it 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 has been <laughs> uh part of that for the for, for the past years and it's um it's also what consumers want they want to understand what company um you know is is, is taking the, the the steps that i feel comfortable uh with as a as a as a consumer
1: it's interesting because it reminds me in Cambodia, they have for um, labor disputes, they have an arbitration council, which issues basically will hear cases, you know, when I was a factory manager there, will hear cases between an employer and an employee. And the decision that the arbitration council issues is not legally binding, but it's sort of like you know explains or makes a very clear case you know according to the law what the course of action should be it is interest it was inter- it is interesting because although it has no legal power but just the fact of putting out a statement which sort of includes a particular line of reasoning as to what the right decision should be actually s- served in Cambodia anyway relatively effectively to put pressure on a particular course of action afterwards. You know, it was something that then activists could use or different entities could could point to. And so it was interesting because it wasn't it wasn't a cor- I mean it wasn't a legally binding thing, but it still had quite a lot of teeth. And if you're interested in learning more about this, highly recommend going back to check out episode twenty-four when we talked to Matthew Rendell, an expert in Cambodian labor law and one of the lawyers involved in setting up this arbitration council
2: exactly um so that teeth part is is important for everybody right for this to uh for for this to continue so i like uh the uh, part where you talk about arbitrage uh, mm-hmm. so if you would define how we would operationalize how we how we mm-hmm. imagine this commercial compliance principle to be operationalized uh, a couple of terms come to mind right uh one of them would be transparency and that would be along the lines of what we uh what we just talked about and 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 reputation there is uh, is part of it um immediately we have to say that if you go that route you have to be very very uh careful uh and and the process by which um you know this transparency is uh, is run has to be has to be very trustworthy Because what we also see uh, is that sometimes it's precisely the companies that are trying, you know, sticking out their necks, trying to do the best that 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 are the ones that are uh, that are attacked, which which doesn't help, you know, progress. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Um, So. We have to be very careful there, but the but the other part is is um, is, is arbitrage. Uh, you know, is, is trying to 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 find a, a, a solution, an amiable solution uh, to these kind of things. Uh, you know, be, before uh, things spill out in the open in a, in a, in a more ugly way, um, and and that really is an should be an integral part of um, this enforcement of of. Commercial compliance and 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 the other part is is continuous dialogue. I mean, those those things mm-hmm. together um, are, are are the main instrument and in the toolbox that we envision.
1: I want to specifically go back to purchasing practices and what's most important to suppliers when it comes to purchasing practices. And I know the white paper hasn't come out yet, and it will come out around the time that this is released, but i I'm still interested I don't know if there's more detail that you can share but the reason i were' interested in this I think is like the term purchasing practices gets thrown around a lot uh, especially in the last year and it can mean a lot of different things um and so i I'm just curious to kind of like bring that to life a little bit in terms of what actually is is most important when we use those terms, at least like based on the conversations that, that you've had?
2: So when we dissect purchasing practices a little bit, um, um, one thing we can do is follow the structure that we made anyway in, uh, in, the, in the project. And uh, we dissected it uh, into uh, payment terms, uh, delivery terms, um, into um, planning and information exchange, into uh, pricing and uh, negotiations um, and into third-party negotiations. Um, So there already you have a little bit more uh, depth uh, as to to what the term uh, means. Um, Because it's not, and and certainly, um, it's it's not just about price, right? Uh, A lot of it is about uh, uh, transferring um I would say risk to the uh to the manufacturer. Um and I I th- I I found that very interesting. The market is struggling, this industry is struggling with risk, right? There's an inherent fashion risk, that's why it's fashion. Um but this is really um extreme in our industry. So you design something one and a half year before and then uh You have to hope that people like it. Mm -hmm. Um, that costs a lot of money because often you're wrong and you have to do something with those goods that people actually don't really like. So you have to sell them at a big discount, or or you can't sell them at all. Um, so that risk is something that you know is passed from the strongest to the weakest link in, in in many different ways. But interestingly, even in trying to fix the problem, right, which means that reducing the risk means you have to be more flexible uh you have to be at the last moment uh, decide does the consumer want uh yellow or does the consumer want red and if you wait until very close to the moment the the product is actually in the store then you reduce the risk because then you're pretty sure that the consumer you know a few days later still likes yellow (laughs) Um, but transferring that that risk and that 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 flexibility that is required is also uh, in 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 uh, two rough ways, I would almost say, shoved towards the uh, the manufacturer uh, uh, too much. Uh, and I think that is that is where a lot of the problems are occurring.
1: Um, I'm so glad you articulated it this way. <laughs> I'm looking at Jesse because I feel like it's something we've talked about so much on on the show. Um, and I think you're like, I to- totally agree with you that these things around price around payment terms, around delivery terms, all these things are, are basically in my view, anyway, tools for distributing financial risk a certain way, you know, they're the how. Um, but if you talk about like purchasing practices, like what I think it is about distributing, uh, distribution of financial risk and reward and it's interesting to hear you pick up on this point on flexibility because it's also actually yeah it's something we've talked about a lot on the show because it's like you know um on the one hand like i think they really go hand in hand shared risk will will enable more flexibility because you know just to give an example like where do I start like my my take on it is that i I think one of the reasons why the forecasting horizons are so long in the first place, and you know therefore, why it's so hard to get these predictions about what consumers will buy right has to do with an unequal distribution of financial risk in the sense that like when the brand sort of outsources that financial risk to the supplier and says, okay, you buy all the raw materials up front, you have all the people on your payroll, like them changing that forecast doesn't actually cost them very little. And so when the supplier takes on that risk all by themselves, I mean, more or less, so to speak, then it creates very directly an incentive to push that risk down to someone else, whether that's a subcontractor, whether, you know, whatever that is. And that's, I think, because because, as a factory manager, like and I've articulated this before on the show on the show, the thing that affected my bottom line the most was these deviations, unexpected, I should say, unexpected deviations in forecast, right, because you know when you've already sunk all the costs of materials and all the costs of labor, if you only you know if you let's say it costs you a hundred dollars and you sell a hundred pieces while well, your price per piece sold is a dollar. But if you only sell 50, suddenly your price per piece sold is, or your cost per piece sold rather is, is $2 double and nothing else has changed. You know, you haven't gotten faster. You haven't gotten slower. You haven't gotten, you know, you haven't hired or fired anyone. Um, and so that like creates, I think a dir- direct incentive to, Get the, you know, that makes the supply chain longer and longer, because how do you cope with that? You cope with that by keeping your capacity as flexible as possible, which requires relying on these external entities, you know, like subcontractors or whatever. And then that makes the forecasting horizon longer, you know, and and then that makes the forecast less accurate. And then you end up with too much inventory that you can't sell and Anyway, <laughs>
2: well, I mean, and what, what you're describing, I think, is a, is a systemic problem. And, mm-hmm. and the, the interesting thing is, and that's where um, why this is so central to what the IAF is doing, because we are not purely the manufacturers' association or the brands or the buyers' association. So we're looking at, at the good for the industry. Uh, and central to that is, is the performance of the supply chain. Right? So um, what, what, what we are looking at is uh, a, a collective solution to, to a problem um, that, um, that requires this collaboration. Um, and if, if there's no collaboration, mm-hmm. an insufficient collaboration in the supply chain, then, then the, 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 the flexibility, the, the risk problem uh, is being solved in a suboptimal way um you know it it it's being solved for one party and um mm-hmm. a bit but it could right. even be in better sh- even for the right. buyers right so, right. so yeah, in, yeah. in in um not sharing uh, risk and reward uh in a in a more equal way in effect uh, the uh, the buyers the the, the brands uh, and and the retailers uh, are also uh, getting uh, a suboptimal result and 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 that's the interesting thing so where who, who moves first right so it's mm-hmm. a it's a systemic uh it's a systemic problem what i found striking was that when we work together also with better buying right in this mm-hmm. uh, in this product.
1: And we interviewed Marcia Dixon from Better Buying in episodes 48 and 49. So if you're interested in learning more about this, be sure to go and check those out.
2: When we were sort of asking for uh priority issues, what what do you think are the most um important elements of the, of those purchasing practices? Surprisingly, um people didn't say payment terms or delivery terms they said it was the planning yeah. and information exchange now if you think about it it's not so surprising it's, it's yeah that makes total sense. from the mindset of a manufacturer you know this is the core problem that you that that you are dealing with right you 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 have your fixed mm-hmm. uh costs you have your investments and uh uh, you know how to uh, how to spread out those orders uh, over the years so that it's uh, uh that, that that you're running a viable uh, business but yeah. yeah there were so many instances where 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 they said look it, it it isn't that difficult right sharing the information that is there anyway with uh with uh, with the buyers uh with us can 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 not only uh make our business more profitable easily but it it also can vastly improve our performance yeah. you know for 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 these brands so so what are they waiting for <laughs> um and and throughout our our conventions that we organize every year uh we we have been uh, always talking about collaboration that has been the center of uh, of the discussion because that that is what leads uh to a better result for everybody involved in in uh, in the end i'm i'm totally uh convinced of that
1: and on that note we're going to conclude part one of this conversation but be sure to tune into part two which we've also released today and during which we'll talk about digitization and how matthais thinks that that might change business processes and by extension supply chain relationships and also why he thinks suppliers have by and large, been left out of the sustainable fashion conversation. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear
0: your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please
1: don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage.
0: Thanks for lazily, and see you next week.